wonderful. I appreciate the enthusiasm with which you're singing out praises to God. How wonderful. That's the way it ought to be done right there. Sing with a loud voice to the Lord. This is our uh, last prayer parable. And uh, the prayer parables are very interesting because uh, they're not so much about teaching you how to pray. The mechanics of prayer, you, you know, as they are about our attitude. So let me see if I can recap. Jesus it was a master storyteller, and the way he taught, he would, he would tell a story quite often that fit the direct context of what had just happened or what was just about to happen, and sometimes his stories built one on another. The stories themselves are very simple, very few characters, very simple storylines, but the stories were designed to teach a truth. They're not comprehensive theologies, uh, uh, no single parable teaches a the whole complexity of Christianity, but just simple truths that he's trying to get his listeners to focus on. Sometimes Jesus' goal in the story, in a parable, is to inspire us to do something. And he might even say at the end of a parable, you go and do likewise. It's an inspirational kind of get up and get going pep talk, you know. Sometimes the goal of the parable is to get you to feel something. Maybe you, you feel this way and he's trying to get you to feel another way. <clears throat> Sometimes the point of a parable is to address bad attitudes, incorrect attitudes that we have. And in the case of the prayer parables in particular, they all seem to be guiding us to address some attitude that we have that might be incorrect towards God, the one we're praying to. So I just want to say this before I start, a lot of your success in your prayer life and a lot of ha about having a healthy prayer life is first about understanding the one to whom you're praying what is he like what am i like why is it that we even have a relationship and once i understand those things then it's like the door is open for a healthy prayer life now also it's not just your how you see yourself and how you see God, there's maybe even a third component here, and that's how you see other people. Do you realize how you see other people, your attitude towards other people can affect your prayer life? Uh, the New Testament says your attitude towards your wife. If husband and wives are fighting like cats and dogs continue, it can be a hindrance to your prayer life, it talks about. So anyway, just want you to be thinking about those things as we get, get into the parable a little bit. Now, that, let me start from here, because it's easy for me to start from me and work my way out. You guys know I was raised in church, and so I've been exposed to both private prayer, what I mean is in the home or in an office or in a closed, a small group setting. I've been exposed to both private and public prayer all of my life. As a matter of fact, I even remember being called to the principal's office. I remember being called to the principal's office a lot, actually. But I remember being called to the principal's office, uh, to come and pray over the loudspeaker before school. Now that's how old I am. Uh, where the teacher would, you know, pick somebody. And you, how many of y'all? How many of y'all prayed at your school, at your public school, over the loudspeaker? Yeah, that's my crowd right there. Yeah, and we went up to the to the office and where the principal had that thing on his desk, you know, and and you'd stand right there and lead the whole school in prayer. No problem. I've been exposed to prayer all my life, whether it's privately or in a in a public setting and it was a big blessing as as what you're modeling for your children is a big blessing to them too it's a big blessing that my parents modeled prayer for me 
from my childhood onwards. Now, as I was thinking back, I cannot remember a time in my life when I did not know how to pray. Now, Letty, you were raised in church too. You should think about this. As you think back, you probably can't even think of a time where I didn't know how to pray. It's just been a part of your life, raised in a Christian home. And that's, that's this cool blessing uh, that our parents built that environment. We've never known anything else than prayer was a natural part of our home life, a natural part of our, our, our life. Growing up, it was just the culture. I have no memories of a life without prayer. Isn't that cool? Now, maybe, you, maybe you're not that way. But maybe, you're, maybe it's within your power to give that to your children now. As you're rearing up your children, young parents, let, let me say this to you. Create an environment where they'll never know a life without prayer. Create an environment where prayer will be just a natural thing that happens at home. We, it's just a natural thing that happens somewhere. Whether it's before a meal or before we go off to work or whether it's something we do. It's just a natural part of life in church, in the youth department, in Sunday school, in the home. We just will grow up and we never have a memory of knowing a life any different than this. I have always known that God wanted to have conversations with me. I've always known that. As a matter of fact, I've always known that I could, I could bow my head or bow my heart even when I'm driving I can't close my eyes but I've always known that I could cry out to God at any time anywhere no matter where I was on the planet earth and God would hear my prayer you know when I go to a foreign place I don't have to wonder wow when I get to Monterey I wonder if Jesus can hear my prayers from Monterey you know People ask Susan a lot, well, what happens to Bob? What are you going to do if, 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 if you know, Bobby gets, dies in India? She's like, he can go to heaven from India as easy as he can from Texas. So what I want you to know is prayer is such a, it, it's all you've got. Remember our illustration last week. It's the technology you've got. And I don't mean to say that it's not cool. It's about as slick as anything can be. Wherever you are, oh, that dang sprint, where are you at, Paul Porter? With that one bar signal, I'll choke you to death, man. I never have to wonder that I'm in some remote place. Can I get on my knees and not get a clear signal through to God? I know that God hears my prayers. We have the witness of all the people in the Bible, whether they were in prison or on islands or in oceans floating on shipwreck uh, boards and God is there, and he wants to have a conversation. He wants to hear your prayers, and he's there. Now, I also have some baggage because I grew up in church always praying. I can remember uh, many, many, many years ago a sermon from what is at the time probably one of the most famous pastors in all of America, and he's preaching on prayer, and he said, let me give you a simple definition of prayer. Prayer is asking, and his whole sermon was built around this prayer is asking. Prayer is asking. That's what prayer is. Prayer is asking. Well, that gives me baggage because now I have the wrong impression hearing somebody very famous preach a sermon that prayer is asking because prayer is not simply asking. There's a whole lot more to prayer than asking. But I, now I've got this baggage somebody's given me that says prayer is asking. Ask, 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 ask. And God does want you to ask. Ask and you shall receive the joy may be full. Yeah, that's, that's right. But prayer is much more than, than asking. 
It's what we teach in discipleship. Pastor Aaron covered this last week. Prayer is adoration. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I mean, that's adoration. That's praise. And prayer, prayer that is a part of prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, say it with me, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. That's the model prayer Jesus gave his disciples. And he said, start with adoration. It's a good place to start with God. Praise him for a while. And talk to him about his his attributes. Prayer is not just asking. It's adoration and praise and intercession. That means praying for other people's needs, not my own. Prayer is supplication. It is asking for my... Prayer is all of that and even more. If all I do is ask, then what does that say about my relationship with God? Put it in a parent-child context. If, all your ki- if your kid never has a conversation with you, except this, I want, I need... Never says hi, never says, how you doing, mom? Good to see you. Hi, dad, what's going on? No conversation except this. Hi, dad, I need. Hi, dad, I want. Hi, dad, I need. Hi, dad, I want. Well, that'd wear pretty thin pretty quick, wouldn't it? How about, hello, nice to see you. What's going on? Thanks for this wonderful house you provide me to live in. Uh, You see what I'm saying? If all we do as God's children is, hello, God, I need. Hello, God, I need. Hello, God, I want. Then, then that's a very one-sided relationship. That's not a conversation. That's not fellowship. That's not, that's not seeking the will of God. That's demanding that God deliver for you. And when God says, no, I don't think so, then you're all mad at God because he's not answering every request you're thro- throwing up there at him. That, that's not a healthy relationship, and that's not the kind of prayer we're talking about. And, and, and it gave me a bit of a wrong impression because... We know, and I'll use an I statement, I know that I've asked for many things just selfishly because I wanted them. I just want it. I want my MTV, and I want it right now, and give it to me. And uh, that's my generation. And, and uh, I've asked for many things uh, just for selfish reasons. And now looking back, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, there's many times when I, even my prayers needed to be repented of. There's many times when I prayed, and then after I prayed, I'm thinking about, did I just say all of that selfishly, you say I'm questioning my own, and then I have to turn right around and say, God, can I talk to you? P.S., I just want to repent for that last prayer I just prayed, because I wasn't right at all. I have to repent of, my, even my prayers need repentance of, that's how bad of a Christian I am. And uh, so you guys are way ahead of the curve now who are being discipled, because you're understanding that prayer is conversations with Christ, and it's very multifaceted, it's not just, not just asking. Now, let me, let me shift a little bit. Certainly praying is something that righteous people do. When, when we think about righteous acts, righteous acts, we would say spiritual acts, righteous acts, are things like attending church, praying, tithing, reading the Bible. Those are what we would call righteous acts. But today Jesus is going to challenge your understanding of righteous acts. Now, let me see if I can frame it for you. We know that the fruit of a righteous person will be righteous acts. We, we know that a person who is righteous, their life will bear fruit that speaks to their righteousness. Is that fair? And so a righteous person will do righteous things. Okay? And we, we know that because the scripture says this. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So 
A person who's righteous, the fruit of that will there be some outward evidence through their actions that they are a righteous person. Every righteous person will have some fruit that is evidence of their relationship with God. Now here's what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from a thorn bush? Answer, no. Do you get figs off of a thistle bush? Answer, no. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. How simple is this teaching? I mean, a good tree, good fruit, a bad tree, bad fruit. All right, 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, if you're in a relationship with God, everyone will know you're in a relationship with God because your life will manifest some fruit. Now, that's, this is very elementary. I got it, okay? But I just want to put it out there. If there is no fruit evidencing that you are in a relationship with God, then you might not be in a relationship with God, okay? That's just how simple it is. But because that truth is so self-evident, people often take the next step, which is a mistake, People often make the mistake of assuming that righteous activities are what makes you righteous. Now, I just crossed the line. That's what I'm trying to say to you. If I'm a righteous person, I should do righteous things. Amen? But don't make the next mistake and cross over, therefore, I have to do righteous acts, and that's what makes me a righteous person, because that is not True. So now we're going to wrestle with this question, do righteous acts make you righteous before God? And that's what I need you to wrestle with for just a moment. In other words, if a person comes to church, lights a candle, says a prayer, gives some money, uh, gives to Salvation Army, helps a, a, you know, a, a stray dog get across the street and find it. So if you do good acts, does th do those acts make you righteous before God. Now you have to be really careful how you answer here because you're going to find you're about to put yourself in conflict with the world. Because your culture says yes. Your culture says yes. If you give to PETA and help old, little old ladies across the street and, and go to church and give to Salvation Army, your righteous acts mean you're going to heaven. That's what the world's thinking is. But I want you to really wrestle with what the Bible teaches this morning. Do righteous acts truly make you righteous before God? And so now Jesus is about to tell a parable. It's the third prayer parable. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Obviously, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is about two people. A Pharisee and a Tax collector, exactly. So this, this is very, very simple stuff here. So there's two people in our story, and that's, that's all, all the characters we have to deal with. So let me deal with the Pharisees first. Now, if you're new to church, the word Pharisee, you think it just means, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a, a hypocrite. It's kind of what you think of if you're not a church person, and you think Pharisee, hypocrite, somebody's a religious hypocrite. And that's, that's a fairly good definition. But the Pharisees, it, it's kind of like Supreme Court justices. Because the law of Israel was the Old Testament, so those who were the legal scholars of the Old Testament were Pharisees, and they formed a, 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 a large court, kind of like the federal judiciary, 
and uh, the Sanhedrin was comprised of a group even of these Pharisees, but there were other Pharisees who probably weren't on the Sanhedrin, but they're, they're the best rule keepers in all of Israel. They were highly, highly respected in Jewish society. They were very educated, much more than the common people. They were a ruling class of spiritual leaders. They were considered by their society as the very definition of righteous or righteousness. No one followed the rules as good as a Pharisee. There's not a person in this room who followed the rules as good as a Pharisee followed the rules. I mean, not only did what the law said, they went beyond even what the law said. Uh, no one knew the Old Testament. No one knew the Bible in their day as well as they did. They, they, were, they were special and they were treated as special. They dressed special just so you would know they were special. They had a fancy little, little hat they wore that only they wore. They had fancy robes that they wore, and it was like a, like, a, like a clerical garment. Only they wore them. And they had special little bells on the bottom, and, and you could, when they walked, it jangled, and you could hear them coming, so you knew to get out of the way so you, the unclean people didn't touch these high and mighty uh, religious people. Oh, yeah, special robe. I mean, special everything. They were special, and they were treated always as special they, they prayed in public with long flowing prayers. Whatever they did, they did it publicly, all of their, their spiritual endeavors, so that people could see their good works in front of men, whether it was tithing or praying or whatever. Long flowing God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long kind of prayers, you know. And, and, and that's what a Pharisee was. They fasted, and when they fasted, they didn't do it in secret. They did it publicly, and, and, and they made their faces sour, and, and, and they dressed a certain way so that you knew they were fasting. That's why Jesus said, when you do all of these things, do them privately so people don't know about it. He said, if you do it publicly, you already have your reward. But you do it privately, and God will, God will reward you. But they were doing it all publicly to be seen. And, and so the general thinking of the day was, if God approves of anyone... Surely it's these Pharisees. If God approved of anyone, if anyone could be righteous, surely it was these very religious rule keepers. And if Pharisees were respected and special, then I want you to know that tax collectors were the exact opposite end of the spectrum in Jewish society. So now Jesus is telling a story, and you've got to love his sense of humor, the way he tells these stories. If he wants to poke the Jews a little bit, he always puts a Samaritan in the story. Are you with me? And if he wants to poke at, at his culture a little bit, what he'll do is he'll say, there was a story. Here's a Pharisee. Everybody went, oh. And here was a tax collector. Ooh. And that's the reaction he's trying to draw. So I want you to know, he's given, he, he's given his two polar opposites in his story as a human being could possibly tell into a story. The tax collectors were totally despised. They were the epitome of corruption. They were, the, they were the representation of an oppressive, corrupt Roman government that had its foot on the neck of Israel. Here's how the tax system worked. Any one of you could be a tax collector. So let's put it in our context, okay? And what you would do is you would lobby uh, Washington, D.C., and you would say, uh, Ezra would write a contract to Washington. He'd say, I think from, from Fort Worth, I can pull out a million dollars worth of taxes for you. And here's my bribe in order to win the contract. And they would get that and they'd say, ooh, a million dollars. This guy thinks he can get a million dollars out of those suckers in Fort Worth. And then Steve writes a contract to Washington. And he says, I think I'd get a million five out of those suckers. 
And here's my bribe to win the contract. Now, before you, I don't know how many of y'all know how business is done around the world and even in America, but a lot of business looks just like this, <laughs> where you're saying, I want to win a contract and, you know, here's, here's a Maserati in the color of your choice. You know what I'm saying? This is the way a lot of business looks. And so the Roman government would get these contracts from tax prospective tax collectors, publicans, and uh, 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 they would look at the contracts and they would say, uh, yeah, he says he can get a million five, but he don't have any track record. Uh, oh, this guy over here says he can get a million. He's a proven deliverer, you know, and, and they would decide who they wanted to give the contract to because basically... When Rome awards that contract, gonna, he's going to make you a millionaire as well. Because here's the way the system worked. So Steve said, I can get a million five out of Fort Worth. Any taxes you can extort from us, more than a million five is pure profit for you. And that's the way the system worked. Uh, it wasn't like you got a tax bill saying you owe this much. It's like the tax collector showed up and said, uh, here's what you owe me. And they would extort from you ridiculous taxes and they had the full authority of the roman government to do it and you knew they were cheating you and there was a corrupt system and you had no recourse whatsoever you had to pay the taxes remember they came to jesus once and they said jesus should we pay our taxes y'all remember the story in the bible and he said yes hand me a coin whose picture is on the coin whose picture was on the coin and he said render unto caesar that which is caesar's yeah pay your taxes and that's what we told him and they were asking because they knew it was corrupt and he said but it's the system you've got and that's what you have to work in or you're all going to be going to jail okay so that's the way the tax system worked so any tax collector was de facto a crook is that fair and so when you said pharisee ooh righteous person and when you said tax collector everybody said oh he's he's scum he's a robber he's a thief He's an extortionist. This is why Zacchaeus was not loved. This is why Matthew, one of the disciples, Levi is his Jewish name, was a publican. He's a tax collector. And that's why when he got saved, he threw a party at his home and invited all of his tax collector buddies. And Jesus went to the party and nothing drew the disdain of the, of the Pharisees upon the ministry of Jesus any more than that act where Jesus went to the tax collector's party and sat down and, and, and played games and, and had dinner. And that just drove them absolutely insane. Now here's the parable. You ready? Luke 18 verse 9 preface jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous but despised others here's the parable two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee the other a tax collector the pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself god i thank you that i am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector over here I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Footnote, I will tell you this. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the prayer parable isn't, isn't how to pray. It's about attitude. And it's about understanding, do righteous acts make you righteous 
before God. Now, let me move as quick as I can because I, I know you're going to be here tonight and got a lot going on, so you listen very quickly. Both of their prayers begin with an address, one word address, God. But after that one word is said, the prayers diverge in two different directions, okay? There ends all similarities in the two prayers of these men. The Pharisees' posture is described briefly, but his prayer is long. The tax collector's posture is described in detail, but his prayer is short, one sentence only. The Pharisee is standing alone, praying thus within himself. It does not mean he's humbled himself and is at the back of the room. It means he's standing in the Pharisee place where the unclean people can't touch him. You, you know what I'm saying? He's, he's special. He's being treated as special. He's not in anonymity at the back of the crowd. It's implied that he's in a place of prominence. The tax collector clearly can be seen by the Pharisee. I'm not like this thief over here, this tax collector. The tax collector is standing at a distance in the temple courtyard most likely. He knows his place. He knows he's considered unclean. He knows that the other people who've come to I'm going to use church now to worship, he knows that they know that he's crooked. He knows he's unwelcome there in church with the rest of the righteous people. But he's compelled to come and worship God the best way that he knows how. Let me ask you at this point in the story, have you ever come in to church and you felt like you were the worst person in the room? I have. <laughs> have you ever come to, into church and you, you sat down and you said, man, here are all these spiritual people. They've probably been reading their Bible, probably read through the Bible this week. They've probably been on their knees fasting and praying all week. They, they, they probably just, I mean, they've been walking with God and their lives are squeaky clean. And I come in here and I know how I've been living and I know I don't deserve to be in here. And man, I, I hope they don't know. I hope they don't know who I am. I hope they don't know what's going on in, in my, gosh, I hope they don't ask me to pray. I don't even know how to pray, really. I don't have that big Abraham, Isaac, Jacob kind of language. I don't have that vocabulary of prayer that they have. Gosh, I hope they don't know me from the past. Have you ever slipped into a church and looked around to see if you knew anybody? And you pray, I hope nobody here knows me. I, ho I hope nobody knows how I'm living right, right now. These two men are presented in the story as polar opposites on purpose. And just to kind of illustrate, if you looked in first century Israel, if you looked up the word righteous, there would be the picture of a Pharisee in the dictionary, okay? And if you looked up the word unrighteous, there would be the picture of a tax collector. What I want to challenge you this morning is when you hear the word righteous or righteousness, what picture do you make in your mind? Because we're 2,000 years removed and we're not in a Jewish culture. So when I say the word righteous to you or righteousness, what picture do you make in your head? I want you to think about that for a second. I'm asking myself as I'm reading this, how can a person be righteous before God? How can it? Because I can determine who if I can figure out the how. How can a person be righteous before God? Every one of us needs to be able to answer this question because the answer to this question is going to determine whether you go to heaven or not. How? Can a person be righteous before God? Because this is what God requires to get in. This is what God requires to have a relationship with him. Righteousness. It's what God requires to inherit eternal life. 
righteousness. Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is what God requires. So how can a person be righteous before God? Let me answer this as quickly as I can. Here are my observations. Number one, who is righteous? The error of the Pharisee is that he thinks he can do righteous acts while harboring disdain for other people like the tax collector. Did you hear his prayer? Father, I thank you that I'm not the scum of the earth like this guy who is the scum of the earth. He's praying. He's giving. He's attending worship. He's doing righteous acts while at the very instant of his righteous act, he's despising his neighbor. Do you see that? He thinks, his error is he thinks He can do righteous acts while harboring disdain for other people. He's doing religious things. He's certain that his religious acts have put him in good standing with God even though he doesn't love other people. He's certain that because he's attending church, he's good with God even though he doesn't love other people. You have to decide if he's right or wrong. He's certain that he's good with God because he separates himself from sinners. He doesn't eat with tax collectors. He doesn't talk to prostitutes. He doesn't doesn't talk to common sinners. And he's sure that that separation he's created in his life from sinners that makes God very happy with him and that he's very good with God. Surely God sees the Pharisee as a righteous person. Or does he? Or does he? That's the question I need you to answer this morning. Can we fulfill the law and not love our neighbor as ourself? Yes or no? It's a mistake. It's a mistake to think that we can fulfill what the Bible is asking us to do if we hate our fellow man. You can't privately separate from everyone, pull into a bubble, do your religious things, say, God, we're good, right? God says, no, we're not. You hate people. You don't love people. You've disassociated with people. I want you to connect with these people. Let's look at Jesus' preface to the parable. This is enlightening to me. Look at this. You put the verses up here for me. Luke 18, 9. Here's the preface to the parable. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Self-righteousness. I think I'm righteous, but I treat others with contempt. Jesus used this illustration with some who were sure that God approved of them while they looked down at everyone else. He also spoke this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous while despising others. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... And look down on everyone else, comma, Jesus told this parable. You understand the preface to the parable. Jesus said, ooh, I need to tell you guys a story because I see what's going on here. Y'all are going through religious actions and you think that creates righteousness. And you think that makes God very happy, but you hate your fellow man. And there's no love of God in your heart. I'm going to tell you a story. And so he teed this story up just to fit this niche within his culture. He's challenging all of us who trust in our good works 
to reconsider our standing before God. You may not be as secure as you think you are. You may not have the standing you think you do. You may be shocked when you step out into the next life to see what your destination is. You understand what's happening? He's challenging the core of their beliefs. Now, the question is, the question really before us is, who is righteous? Let me start by who is not. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If there is no righteousness in us, no, not one of us, if there's no righteousness in us, then we realize we're going to have to go to an external source to obtain it. There is no righteousness in you. You were born a sinner. That means if you're going to have righteousness, it has to come from an outside source and be infused into your life. So now here's a couple of options. You either assume then I can do righteous acts and then righteousness is infused into my life because I light candles and and pray and confess. And when I go through the religious disciplines, righteousness is being infused into my life because of that. That's option A. That's called salvation by works. Or option B, we're going to talk about righteousness comes from an outside source as a gift into into your life. When Israel was confronted with this question, they assumed that people who did righteous acts were righteous people. Okay, and I understand why you would make that mistake. Because righteous people should have the fruit of righteousness. I mean, we talked about that already. And so it's an easy mistake to make. But righteous acts are not what creates righteousness in you. In Jesus' story, which one went home right with God? The Pharisee or the tax collector? The tax collector. The tax collector didn't do righteous acts. He was a crook. Okay? So you're being challenged right now. Luke 18, verse 13. And the tax collector, here's his prayer. The tax collector, standing afar off, he wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful. I know. I have no illusions about my goodness. I am not good. I have no righteousness in me at all. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm unworthy. Let me read verse 14 now to show you the reaction to his prayer. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. That's the key word. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Look at God's word. I guarantee that this tax collector went home with God's approval. But the Pharisee did not. Everyone who honors himself will be humbled, but the person who humbles himself will be honored. Look at the NIV. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, the tax collector, went home justified before God. Now, justified is a word that keeps popping up here, and we're going to have to wrestle with, with justified here in just a moment. But we can easily conclude from the teaching of Jesus that you can come to church, pray, give a portion of your income to the church, and live a life separated from sinners and still not be in good standing before God. Let me say it this way. Righteous acts without compassion and love are not considered righteous acts before God. Is that fair? So if we go through the motions of religion and do righteous acts, but we don't have love and compassion 
for, for others, that's one key in the story, then that's not a righteous act as far as God is considered. See, what happened in the story is Jesus, his declaration of which man was actually righteous must have been mind-blowing to the Jews. I mean, not just mind-blowing, insulting. This whole story is a direct slap into the face of the Jewish religion. Jesus just called a man righteous who was known by everyone to be unrighteous. Jesus would not call another man righteous whom all of society had already called righteous. You're like the world's upside down all of a sudden, didn't it? Yes, it is. And that's what Jesus came to tell us. God's view of how a man gets righteousness and the world's opinion of how a world gets right are diametrically opposed to each other. They're opposites. We're confronted with the fact that doing righteous acts does not make you righteous before God. Now, let me reinforce it with some scripture as we wind her down. You ready? Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but he is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight well somebody ought to memorize that that's tough because it's toughly worded but you understand the teaching of of Paul in Galatians you're not saved through your righteous acts through your good works you're saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and believing on him who was righteous you believe in a righteous person the only righteous person actually and that's how righteousness comes the teachings of the Bible and the teachings of our society are very, very different from each other. Let me ask the second question now. How are we justified before God? Justified is a legal word in the Bible. These, these were legal terms they were using. And, and justified, even if you look it up in, in your modern English dictionaries, it's an adjective that means declared, declared to be righteous or made righteous in the sight of God. That's what the word justified means. It means acquitted. Now, I don't want you to know all the ugly crimes that I've committed. I don't want you to know all the sins that I've committed. The list is long and distinguished. And those are the charges that stand against me before God. I am a sinner and I have the fruits to prove it. And that's what stands between me and a relationship with God. How do I get that dealt with? I need to be acquitted. Those are my crimes. I need to be pronounced not guilty. I need someone to say, I'll pay for your crimes and I'll let you go free and declare me to be justified, declare me righteous in the sight of God. Now, here's what we also know from Scripture. Nice little systematic theology this morning. Romans chapter three, chapter 8, verse 33. The end of the verse says this. It is God who justifies. I want you to see these words. It is God who justifies. And if you'll read the verses before and after in Romans 8, it'll tell you that God has set Jesus Christ up to be the judge, and he will judge. It is God who justifies. God alone is righteous. And because God alone is righteous, then God alone is the one who proclaims who will be acquitted and, and who will be condemned, who will be in good standing and who will remain guilty. 
The Pharisee is trusting in his religious works, and he's presuming that he and God are good. I mean, I do all of, I'm all this, man. God and I must be good. Everybody thinks I'm righteous, so surely God must see me also as righteous. He goes home without being justified. The, 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 the tax collector is justified because he comes in before God and he pleads for mercy to the only true God who can grant forgiveness. He never presumes that he has any standing with God. He never presumes that there's anything good about his life. And instead he cries out for mercy to a righteous God. And Jesus said that guy goes home justified right there. That's the guy who got it. Now, in Romans chapter 3, it sounds like this. Now, let me see if I can explain as we go. So, go slowly. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. For by the laws of the knowledge of sin. Got it. 21. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from keeping the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and prophets. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God. Now, how do you get it? Watch this. The righteousness of God, here's how you get it, through faith in Jesus Christ to, to all and on all who do righteous acts, who go to church, who pray, who light candles, who go on pilgrimages. No, righteousness comes on all who believe, for there is no difference. Listen, the gospel we preach is not bound by the color of your skin or the color of your passport or, or your background or the level of your sin or how good a person you are or how bad a person you are or your family. God doesn't care about any of that. Righteousness is available for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. Verse 28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by... Say it out loud. And that means believing in Jesus Christ. That means acting, trusting in Jesus Christ. We who have no righteousness are credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in Him and receive Him as our Savior. Now this is what the Bible teaches. Romans 4 follows the same thinking, and it talks about a man named Abraham. For what does the Scripture say? Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. So I'm back to this question. How do you get to be justified? You put your faith in Jesus Christ who alone is righteous. And God says, you couldn't be righteous. My son was righteous. You received my son. I put your sin on Jesus. I take his righteousness and I credit that to your account and I wash out all of your sin debt with his righteousness. And when I see you standing before the court of God, I no longer see an unworthy sinner. I see the righteousness of my own son, Jesus Christ. Now you'd be crazy to pass this deal up, ladies and gentlemen. 
I mean, this is, this is, this is not a con job. This is a real, and it's the, it's the greatest opportunity anyone's ever put in front of you. Forsake your own righteousness and just admit you're a sinner. It's, not, it's difficult, but it's not that difficult. And receive Christ as your Savior who was righteous. And God said, I'll wash out, I'll cancel your crimes. And instead, I'll put the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your account. See, we have all these crazy jokes that you hear, you know, somebody died and stands before the gate. St. Peter comes out. Blah, blah, blah. The jokes always start that way. Listen, if anybody ever gets, gets you at the gate of heaven and says, why should I let you in? Listen, the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to your account. You don't stand there in your own works. You don't stand there in how you've lived your life. You don't stand there to confess all the things you've done. You stand there in the sinless robe of Jesus Christ. And you say, dude, check the book. I mean, seriously. God has credited the righteousness of Jesus Christ to my account. And I stand here in the righteousness. I don't stand here in my own goodness. Listen, I stand here in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what will get me. And that's what gave me a relationship with God. A verse you'll memorize in discipleship, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because, see, if you could get saved by works, we'd be all just like that Pharisee, wouldn't we? We'd be strolling in here with our three-piece suits and making our fancy prayers and, and, and doing big things to be seen of people. And it would corrupt us. And it will be about works. And God said it's not about works. And he said it's not about boasting. Because Christ has done it all for us. Now, the, uh, mom was looking up the, the old ancient words last night. We were talking about this for, for being justified and for righteousness. It means to link your life to God. Let me just tell you what happens very briefly. When you say, Jesus, I receive, I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy. But you died for people like me. According to your word, and upon your word, I receive you as my Savior. What you're doing by faith is you're linking your life to God through Jesus Christ. He's the link that connects you to God. The one who became a man and died for your sins, he becomes the link to you and God. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about that we're about to study. That Christ has come and given you something better than any religion and any nation has ever seen. He's given you a direct relationship with Jesus Christ who's linked your life to God. And when your life is linked to God, listen, righteous acts should follow. Amen? I mean, it, it, let me just ask you this. My time's done. Let me just ask you this. Have you linked your life to God through Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you need to do that today. And I'm going to show you how in just a minute. If you have linked your life to Jesus Christ, now what you need to do is you enter, enter into a season of discipleship, let people speak into your life and develop you into a mature Christian so that you can reproduce more Christians. This is what Christianity truly is all about. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's, let's make a quick decision this morning about a few things in our life. This parable is about, one, understanding how righteousness is generated in our lives, and I know you're clear on that now. And if you don't have that relationship with Christ, I'm going to pray with you in just a moment. But for all of you who already have, and you're walking with God in discipleship, and you're being taught how to pray and how to have conversation with Christ, this parable for you is a parable of attitudes. 
What is your attitude towards God when you pray? What is your attitude toward your, about yourself as you pray? What is your attitude towards other people as you pray? Let's, let's deal with these one by one right now. Your attitude towards God is to remember that He loves you and He is quick and eager to answer your prayers. Right now with your heads bowed nine closed, why don't you just say, God, I thank you that you are there and you are listening and you are eager. You love me. You respond to my work. You just praise him for that. And, and say to him, just say, Father, when I forget that, would you remind me of that? God, if my attitude gets bad towards you and I think you don't love me or, 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 or you're letting me suffer and you, and you don't love God, would you just help me correct my attitude in that moment? Because I know you're a loving God, cares deeply for me and you will respond to my prayers. Thank you for being such a wonderful God. Let's work on our attitude towards our neighbor now. Maybe sometimes you see yourself better than others. Why don't you just confess that right now and say, God, forgive me, because sometimes I see myself better than other people. And I'm not better than anybody. I'm just a sinner. The only reason I have righteousness at all is because you gave it to me through faith in your son. I'm not better than anybody. God, forgive me. God, I know you're not impressed with my righteous acts and my air of superiority. God, forgive me. I'm sorry. Help me not to despise another man or woman. Help me to love others as you loved others and modeled that. People who weren't at all like you racially or same background, you loved them all. Loved them all alike. God, put that spirit in me. And then sometimes we need to deal with our attitude about ourself. Just say, God, thank you for giving me your righteousness. That's the only reason I have any. Because of the wonderful gift that you gave me. Maybe you're like the tax collector this morning. You've been written off by others. I want you to know that God has written you in. That's the whole story. Jesus said, those you have written off, God has written in. Maybe you've had a bad church experience or a bad religious experience, or maybe you have no religious experience. And maybe people would look at you and say, you're, you're not a righteous person, and they've written you off. I want you to know the gospel of Jesus Christ has written you right back in to God's story this morning. Your part is just to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. 